Please be seated. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I have, um, I have loved being a father. It is so fun to have two boys and a third on the way. And we're getting into a phase now that is very, very exciting because Jude is five. He's in kindergarten, as you know, and, um, and he's getting to that age where I can start showing him things that I grew up with that are exciting to me, and he can begin to appreciate those things. So like right now, my big question is, when will I show him the Star Wars series, and how will I show him the Star Wars series? Will I go canonical order, or will we do release order? I'm leaning towards release order. We had a discussion about this after the 8 o'clock service this morning. One of those other things that I have recently started showing him is the Lord of the Rings. So before bed every night, he and I read about five pages of The Hobbit. And uh, man, every time I read that book, this is probably the fifth or sixth time I've gone through it, I'm struck by the way that the main character, Bilbo, who's this small, seemingly insignificant hobbit, he's a homebody, he doesn't want to leave his hobbit hole at the beginning of the novel, evolves over the course of the story. He gets gradually braver and braver as he goes on an adventure with a group of dwarves and a wizard. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the quest, the dwarves who are in the company with Bilbo are not really sure why he's there. They ask the wizard, why did you bring him? And the wizard kind of fusses at them and says, I brought him because I saw something in him. And if I didn't see that thing in him, I wouldn't have brought him. And so over time, as Bilbo's character changes and evolves and develops... Really what he's doing is he's recognizing in himself what Gandalf has already observed about him. So as we've been reading it, I've been thinking a lot about this plot line, and it hits me just how much we love the story of underdogs, of how we love unlikely heroes. We love to see the unexpected. If you're a sports fan like me, you're always cheering for the underdog, unless you're a Cowboys fan, in which case we're never the underdog, but we seem to act like it sometimes. Anyways. The human longing to see the unexpected is fulfilled in the scriptures. Over the summer, you might remember that we looked at the story of Israel and the Exodus, which began with the call of Moses from the burning bush. And in that story, Moses, who had been a prince of Egypt, who had been expelled from the country because he stood up for a Hebrew when he was being beaten by by an Egyptian. Moses is kind of at the end of his ropes and God encounters him in this burning bush And when God tells Moses that he's called to lead the people of Israel up out of slavery, the first thing Moses does is he comes up with a laundry list of excuses why he's not the right person. I'm slow of speech, he tells God. Maybe he lacked confidence. Maybe he had a speech impediment. Either way, God says, don't worry about it. I'll give you Aaron. He'll speak for you. Moses says, yeah, I'm still not really sure I'm the guy. So God turns his staff into a snake, and even beyond that, Moses puts his hand in his tunic, and he pulls it out, and he's got leprosy, and then he puts it back in, takes it out, and it's cleansed. God is showing him God's powerful enough to do this. God even asks, I made the mouth. Can I make you a good speaker? Moses still doesn't quite get it, and at the end, he resists one last time, and it says the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and after that, there's no more resistance. So Moses relents, he goes and delivers the people and becomes the most important leader in the history of Israel. I mean, he was so important that subsequent generations had him imprinted in their mind as the prototypical leader. His call at the beginning of Exodus 
really acts as a template for all the calls of important leaders in Israel's history subsequently. You want to be a good leader of Israel? Well, you better be called the same way Moses was called. So you can think about Gideon at the beginning of the book of Judges. God calls him to deliver the people who had been oppressed by one of the neighboring countries. And Gideon says, I'm not the right guy. I'm the weakest man and the weakest clan and the weakest tribe of Israel. So God gives him some signs. And Gideon is the one who ends up delivering the people of Israel from their oppression. Isaiah chapter 6, which we read on Trinity Sunday, the prophet is transported up into heavenly worship and God asks, whom shall I send? To which Isaiah comes up with a list of reasons why he's not the right person to be sent. Well, I'm a man of unclean lips from a nation of unclean lips. So God sends the angel to the heavenly altar who picks up the coal with tongs and he comes to Isaiah and he touches his mouth with the coal, purifying his lips so that he can now speak the word of God to the people. Today, we have the story of Jeremiah's call from the opening of his book, and it follows the same pattern. God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, but Jeremiah resists, claiming, I cannot speak, for I am a child. This objection feels especially ironic or maybe silly, given the way that God has just called him in the first verse. God comes to Jeremiah and says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God knew Jeremiah better than Jeremiah did. God saw what he had given Jeremiah. God already made Jeremiah what he was called to be. So Jeremiah's statement, it seems humble at first. It's actually feigning humility. It's actually a kind of false modesty. It ultimately reflects a lack of faith because if God formed Jeremiah in the womb, if God called Jeremiah, if God sanctified and ordained Jeremiah, then why would anyone question whether Jeremiah could speak well enough? And so in response to his doubt, God offers Jeremiah two things. First is a reassurance. He says, whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee. And then he gives Jeremiah a sign. He reaches forth his arm and touches Jeremiah's mouth with his hand and says, behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. This was very important for prophets in the Old Testament because the book of Deuteronomy details that if you speak something that God did not tell you to, If you make a prediction and it doesn't come to pass, then the punishment was capital. You would be stoned because you were presuming to speak for God. This is is the violation of the fifth commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not just when we stub our toes and we say, oh my. It's when we presume to speak for God when he didn't say what it is that we're saying. And so God reassures Jeremiah, I'm giving you what you need. And the underlying message here and in the other call narratives is not that these flawed men are special on their own merit. It's that they're special because God chose them. And it's God who's so powerful that he can overcome their insecurities and their deficiencies and their flaws. In many ways, this call of Jeremiah is a fitting reading for the Advent season, a season in which we are taught to expect the unexpected. 
Because out of all the places in the universe that we can look for God, Advent teaches us that we're to look at that helpless baby lying in that manger in that little backwater town of Nazareth. That's where God is. That's where we see him. And as we progress throughout this church year and we get closer to Lent and to Holy Week, we're going to see him in an even more unexpected place, hanging on a cross. God is not in the whirlwind. He's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the power of empire. He's not in the wealth of kings. He's in the still, small voice of the baby cooing in the manger. He's in the still, small voice of an occupied territory in a region that was deemed by the world really unimportant. He's in the still, small voice of the cross that so many people see as weakness. And that really is a hang-up for many people, that God would reveal himself that way. I was talking to someone recently who said, well, I understand God the Father, but God the Son being crucified seems a little wimpy, is what they said. Many people, many people can't understand the cross. It's, it's what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In fact, we see John the Baptist wrestle through this question a little bit himself today. You've got to remember, John the Baptist was the ascetic. I mean, he was a rigorist. He was out in the desert eating very little. He was disciplining himself and his body. And he's in prison. And what is he hearing Jesus is doing? Well, Jesus is out spending time with, with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And so John wonders, are you the one that we're supposed to be expecting or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus has been hanging out where Jews of the day would not have looked for God, where we probably wouldn't look for God. When God shows up in unexpected places, many of us have a tough time believing it. This is the point St. Paul makes at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The cross is a stumbling block because it confounds our expectations. But as Jesus tells John in the reading this morning, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Blessed are we when we can discern God in those unexpected places and see them as an occasion to worship rather than to be offended. And so with what very little time remains of our Advent season, let us be alert and sober as Paul exhorted us in Romans 13 a few weeks ago. We should be awake to the fact that God moves and works in those unexpected places. In fact, we're about to see one of those unexpected places in just a few minutes as we approach the altar and we receive the Eucharist where God comes to us by transforming the unassuming bread and wine into his body and blood. Our collect today highlights another way that God works unexpectedly, and it's in his church And it's through flawed priests like me and Father David. To many people who might come here who aren't religious, who don't believe in God, this is just a nice community of people. We gather together because we kind of believe the same things and we, we offer each other mutual encouragement. And they're not wrong. We do those things and those, that's a good thing to have. We need robust community. But what the world doesn't see 
is that when we come forward today to go to the altar, it's not just us here, but we're worshiping with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. We're being transported. We're being elevated. We're being transfigured. We're participating in the worship of heaven. That's why the ceiling is blue here to remind us that we're being brought up. So God comes to us in bread and wine. He comes to us in community and communities we may not expect him to work in. But the third and final way that God works unexpectedly is in us, in you and me. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God takes all of who we are, all of our brokenness, our insecurities, our deficiencies, our flaws, and he transforms us, sometimes slowly, sometimes slower than we would like, but surely into little Christs. And so as we approach the Christmas celebration and we view the baby in the manger, this is the great hope afforded to us. If God can work in an unexpected place like that, he can work in an unexpected place right here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.